Well, hello there, my spooky friends. Don't be afraid. It's just me, your old pal, Bo. Look, I'm not going to lie. This is my favorite time of year. We have entered the Halloween season. Christmas for nerds like me. And to celebrate around Pick 6 Movies, we like to do some scary movies. See, what we do around here is we take a set of six movies built around a common theme, and then we tell you all about the movie itself. How it got made, when it got made, why it got made... Sometimes that one's a little tougher to answer than others. So anyway, here we are in Season 9. And this time around, we are calling it Hail to the King, baby. Well, forget the baby part. Hail to the King. Because we're talking about movies based on the works of best-selling horror author Stephen King. And we are starting out with a banger. That's right. We are talking about Carrie. No, not that one. This one. No, that was last season. It's the remake. It's the bad one. You're in for a real treat. We had a lot of fun with this episode. My best pal Chad Cooper is going to be along in a second to give you some more information about this movie, and then we're going to goof on it a little bit. It's going to be a great time. Light the candles, get the pumpkin spice latte. It's the Halloween season, everybody. And this is the start of season nine of Pick Six Movies, Carrie. On June 19th, 1999, Stephen King died. Almost. Few authors can compare with Stephen King's ability to consistently produce a growing library of fiction that, at the time of this recording, is at least 60 published novels. But that number was almost cut in half due to the events of June 19th, 1999. On that day, Stephen King was staying with his family at a lake house that they owned in Maine. He was out for an afternoon walk, reading a book simultaneously, as was his habit. As he walked and read, a blue Dodge minivan came over the hill and hit King, bouncing him off the van's windshield, leaving the author collapsed and bleeding. This is how King described his memory of the accident. This recollection is very clear and sharp, more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillights, the license plate, and the back windows are dirty. I remember these things with no thought that I've been in an accident or of anything else. It is a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swooped clean. There's another little break in my memory here, and then I am very carefully wiping palmfuls of blood out of my eyes with my left hand. When my eyes are reasonably clear, I look around and see a man sitting on a nearby rock. He has a cane drawn across his lap. This is Brian Smith, 42 years of age, the man who hit me with his van. Smith has got quite a driving record. He has racked up nearly a dozen vehicle-related offenses. Smith wasn't looking at the road on the afternoon our lives came together because his Rottweiler had jumped from the very rear of his van into the back seat area, where there was an igloo cooler with some meat stored inside. The Rottweiler's name is Bullet. Smith has another Rottweiler at home. That one is named Pistol. Bullet started to nose at the lid of the cooler. Smith turned around and tried to push Bullet away. He was still looking at Bullet and pushing his head away from the cooler when he came over the top of the knoll, still looking and pushing when he struck me. Smith told friends later that he thought he'd hit a small deer until he noticed my bloody spectacles lying on the front seat of his van. 
They were knocked from my face when I tried to get out of Smith's way. The frames were bent and twisted, but the lenses were unbroken. They are the lenses I'm wearing now as I write this. This recounting of the accident is from Stephen King's memoir titled On Writing. In this book, the author provides a non-fictional account of his life and his perspective on the craft of writing. The book is divided into five sections. The first section, titled CV, which is short for Curriculum Vitae, which is Latin for the course of your life. This section of On Writing provides a personal account of Stephen King's life from his childhood and into adulthood, and it touches on some key moments that influenced his career as a writer. He details early writings and the struggles that he had to get published. He examines the relationship that he had with his mother and his wife, Tabby. He details his history of substance abuse, and it's all pretty open and honest. The second section of the memoir is titled, What Writing Is, where he defines, well, what writing is. The third section is titled, Toolbox, where he details the importance of vocabulary, grammar, and style in writing. And these three sections were all but complete at the time of King's unfortunate introduction to Brian Smith and his van. The accident caused King to suffer a collapsed lung, multiple bone fractures in his right leg, and a broken hip. The injuries to his leg were so severe that doctors considered amputation at one point. King remained in the hospital from June 19th until July 9th. And after five operations and a round of physical therapy, King returned to completing his memoir, on writing in July, where he completed the fourth and fifth sections of the book. The fourth section is titled On Writing and provides advice from King on the craft of writing. And the fifth section is titled On Living, a postscript, where King discusses the accident in detail. If you're listening to this and you haven't read Stephen King's memoir On Writing, you should really remedy that situation as quickly as possible. It is one of the best books that I've ever read. And it's to this book that I would like to turn in support of this episode, specifically the first section of the book titled CV. In this section, King speaks of his early life and how his first published novel, Carrie, ignited one of the most prolific writing careers ever. In 1973, Stephen King was broke. He was living in a double-wide trailer with his wife, Tabby, and their two children. King drove a beat-up Buick to his job teaching English at a private academy in eastern Maine. To help pay the bills, he worked summers at an industrial laundry. He also worked as a janitor, and he pumped gas. King wrote on his wife Tabby's typewriter that was set up in the laundry room on a makeshift desk between the washer and the dryer. He submitted short stories to Playboy or Cavalier or Penthouse magazine, and every now and again he would get something published and a check would show up to help make ends meet for the month. King's work began to find regular publication in different magazines that, by and large, were more known for female flesh over fantastic fiction. But King was among pretty good company when it came to contemporary writers of the time publishing in these magazines. Among them were Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and Roald Dahl. But it turned out that the audience for these magazines, filled with naked women, also liked short stories from the horror and sci-fi genre of fiction. Who would have thought that? And during this time, King received feedback from his readers that he didn't really write about women. One reader in particular reportedly said, you write about all these macho things, but you can't write about women. You're scared of women. And King took this to heart and decided to write about women. In particular, one very special young woman. When Stephen King was working in the laundry, a memory from his past came to him. 
The memory was from a time when he was around 19 years old and he was employed as a high school janitor. One of his duties was to scrub the shower stalls of both the boys' and girls' bathrooms. In the latter location, King noticed two very foreign unmarked metal boxes attached to the walls. He asked his supervisor, Harry, the janitor, what the boxes were for. Harry said they were pussy plugs, further clarifying, for them certain days of the month. That's classy. King also noticed other differences between the girls' and boys' locker rooms. The girls' showers had shower curtains hanging from rings, allowing them more privacy. And this sparked an idea for the opening scene of a story. Girls showering in a locker room where there are no curtains and no privacy. And one of the girls starts her period for the first time, but doesn't know what's happening. The other girls are grossed out and horrified, but somewhat amused by the situation and they start throwing sanitary napkins and tampons, or pussy plugs if Harry the janitor's listening, at the frightened girl. She's bleeding, she is being bullied, she should fight back, but how? King also recalled a time when he was much younger and he had read an article in Life magazine that said that the spooky goings-on of poltergeist may actually be telekinetic activity where people can move things around with their minds. And the article said that this was more prevalent in adolescent girls right around the time that they start their first period. Idea one, meet idea two. King worked on a draft of the story, but ran into a few problems. Most notably, King wasn't moved emotionally by the story, coupled with the fact that he really didn't like the main character, Carrie White. King said he viewed Carrie as thick and passive, and she was a ready-made victim. King also felt some unease in writing a story with an all-female cast of characters because these were characters he wasn't wholly qualified to write about. And lastly, King realized that to do the story justice, it needed to be longer than what could be published in the pages of Playboy magazine. King resolved that he couldn't see wasting weeks or months on writing a novella that he didn't like in an attempt to sell it to a magazine that wouldn't publish it. And so the early draft pages of Carrie made their way into the trash can. King wrote about what happened next. The next night, when I came home from school, Tabby had the pages. She'd spied them while emptying my wastebasket, had shaken the cigarette ashes off the crumpled balls of paper, smoothed them out, and sat down to read them. She wanted me to go on with it, she said. She wanted to know the rest of the story. I told her I didn't know jack shit about high school girls. She said she'd help me with that part. She had her chin tilted down and was smiling in that severely cute way of hers. You've got something here, she said. I really think you do. And she was right. It wasn't just a novel. It was the start of his career. Stephen King based Carrie White on two girls from his high school. One was a frail girl who suffered from epilepsy, who also had a mother that was a fundamentalist Christian who kept a large crucifix hanging in the living room. The other girl he used for inspiration wore the same clothes to school every single day and was teased by her classmates. When King was riding Carrie, both of these girls were no longer living. The first girl suffered an epileptic seizure and died alone. The other girl went on to marry a local television weatherman and they had a child, but suffering from postpartum depression, she shot herself in the stomach with a rifle. Upon reflection of how these two women were treated and how their lives ended, King wrote, very rarely in my career have I explored more distasteful territory. King finished the novel Carrie and he began submitting it for publication and it was rejected by 30 publishers. 
One day, when he was grading papers at school, his wife Tabby called him at work. This was kind of a big deal because the King household didn't have a phone because they couldn't afford one. So Tabby had to go to the neighbors to use their phone, and this was only done in extreme situations. King picked up the phone and Tabby said that Bill Thompson, the editor at Doubleday Publishing, sent a telegram reading, Congratulations, carry officially a Doubleday book. Is $2,500 advance okay? The future lives ahead. Love, Bill. And so it was that Carrie slowly inched its way to hardback publication. And in due time, it was released to the public. And the novel Carrie sold like, hmm, what's the opposite of hotcakes? Well, whatever that is. Because when Carrie came out, it sold around 13,000 copies in hardback, which is not a lot. And so Stephen King signed a contract extension to continue teaching English for another year and all but said goodbye to Carrie White as his life was set to move on in a different direction. That was until one day when Bill Thompson, remember that editor at Doubleday Publishing? Well, he called Stephen King to share some news. And the news that Stephen King heard was Bill Thompson saying something unbelievable. Signet Books bought the paperback rights to Carrie for $40,000 and King would get half of that, $40,000. That's what King misheard Bill Thompson say. What Bill Thompson actually said was that Signet Books bought the paperback rights for $400,000, and King's cut would be half of that. King asked Thompson to repeat the number again, very slowly and very clearly, to make sure he understood correctly. The two talked for half an hour on the phone. King hung up and he was alone in his house with no one to share this incredible news with as his wife Tabby was off with their kids at their grandmother's house. It was a Sunday and King felt compelled to rush out and buy his wife a celebration present. And the only store that was open on Sundays was a drugstore. Tabby returned home with the kids and King gave his wife the most extravagant present that the drugstore had to offer, a hairdryer. King wrote of this moment, she looked at me as if she'd never seen one before. What's this for, she asked. I took her by the shoulders. I told her about the paperback sale. She didn't appear to understand, and I told her again. Tabby looked over my shoulder at our shitty little four-room apartment, just as I had, and we both began to cry. Carrie was both Stephen King's first published novel and the first novel to be adapted into a movie. Brian De Palma said in an interview with Cinema Fantastique magazine that he'd read the novel, which had been given to him by a mutual acquaintance of both he and Stephen King. De Palma inquired about who owned the film rights to Carrie, and a few studios were considering adapting it into a film, but nobody had snatched them up yet. De Palma let it be known that he was interested in adapting Carrie to the big screen and really put things in motion. Now, at this time in his career, Brian De Palma was known more for documentary films and a few smaller independent motion pictures. And much like Stephen King's career, Carrie would turn out to be the start of a career for Brian De Palma that would later be filled with bigger and bolder and more popular works for the young filmmaker. The novel Carrie is an epistolary novel, meaning that it uses newspapers and magazine articles, uh, personal letters that are written by characters in the book, and excerpts from other writings to tell the story of how Carrie wreaks havoc on a small town in Maine while serving up some ice-cold revenge to the jerks from her school and her super-religious mom. Translating this 
to a screenplay fell to Lawrence Cohen. Cohen would later go on to pen adaptations of King's other works for television, including It and The Tommyknockers. United Artists was the studio behind Carey, and they eventually were happy with a draft that Cohen produced, and they ultimately gave to Palma $1.8 million to make the film. Now, this was a relatively small amount of money at the time for a horror movie, which was a genre that was incredibly popular at the time. And just a couple of years prior to the production of Carrie, audiences were going crazy for Jaws and The Exorcist and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Jack Fisk was the art director on Carrie. Fisk's career included collaborations with Terrence Malick and David Lynch, two people that he had known since his childhood. Fisk would go on to be nominated for an Oscar for his art direction on Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, and he got another nomination for his work on The Reverend, which is the movie where Leonardo DiCaprio snagged his Oscar. Here's a fun fact. Jack Fisk appeared in David Lynch's Eraserhead, and he's the man in the planet. And in the credits of that film, you will see special thanks given to Fisk's wife, who reportedly held the slates between the takes of Eraserhead. Here's an even funner fact. Jack Fisk's wife is Sissy Spacek. And it was Fisk who convinced his wife, Sissy Spacek, to audition for the film Carrie. And it was Fisk who convinced Brian De Palma to get her in there for the audition. Spacek was so determined to land the leading role of Carrie that she passed on a TV commercial and she rubbed Vaseline in her hair and she went to the audition wearing a dress that her mother had made when she was in seventh grade with the hems cut off. And I know you know this, but she got the part. Future female partner to Robocop, Nancy Allen, she landed the part of Chris the meanest of the mean girls in the movie, and Alan would later go on to wed the film's director, Brian De Palma. Well, they were married for a few years anyway. And Nancy Allen wasn't the only actress in this movie that went on to bigger and better things. This movie is full of young actresses and actors that would go on to incredible careers. William Catt plays the benevolent boyfriend Tommy, William Catt would later go on to be known as the greatest American hero on the ABC accidental superhero who got powers from space aliens, who works by day as a troubled youth school teacher and partners with the FBI to fight crime. Primetime extravaganza program. Yeah, that was a real TV show when I was a kid. Amy Irving is the well-intentioned girlfriend of Tommy. Irving would go on to receive an Oscar nomination for her performance in Yentl. She was also married to Steven Spielberg for a while. That ain't too shabby. Betty Buckley plays the gym teacher. She would later go on to be the matriarch on the TV series Eight is Enough. PJ Souls, the ball cap wearing blonde Norma. She would later appear in John Carpenter's Halloween, and she also showed up alongside Bill Murray in Stripes. If you look closely, you'll see Edie McClurg doing jumping jacks during the gym scenes. McClurg would later go on to play the school receptionist who claims that Ferris Bueller is a righteous dude, and she's also the car rental agent who tells Steve Martin that he's fucked in planes, trains, and automobiles. And not to be overlooked, we see a fully head-of-haired John Travolta. This was John Travolta's first really big role, where he plays a pig-murdering, woman-slapping, drunk-driving, soon-to-be-burned-alive abusive boyfriend of the head mean girl. Right around this time, Travolta hit it big on the sitcom Welcome Back, Cotter, and then he made the TV movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, and then superstardom followed, and then it all went away. You know what? We'll come back to Mr. Travolta another day. The cast wasn't all young upstarts, though. Piper Laurie was cast to play Carrie's mother, Margaret White. Laurie was an established, successful stage actress, and she appeared alongside Paul Newman in The Hustler. 
This movie had a real deal cast and a real deal crew attached that was chock full of real deal talented people. And so Carrie was released in theaters on November 3rd, 1976, and it received both commercial and critical praise. It was acknowledged as being one of the best films of 1976. My personal favorite of all of the Eberts, Roger, who turns out is also a film critic, well, he described the movie as an absolutely spellbinding horror movie. Critics cited the movie as being scary, funny, terrifying, shocking, manipulative, all of which were meant to be and mostly received as compliments. And most recently, female foot enthusiast Quentin Tarantino placed Carrie at number eight in his list of his favorite films ever. This version of Carrie brought in $33.8 million against that budget of $1.8 million, and it was a hit. Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie received Academy Award nominations for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively. Now, Spacek lost out to Faye Dunaway for her role in the movie Network, and Piper Laurie lost out to Beatrice Strait for her performance, also in the movie Network. You know, Network, it's a pretty damn good movie. In 2008, Carrie was ranked number 86 on Empire Magazine's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. 500? That seems like a lot. Carrie also ranked number 46 on the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest cinema thrills. But most importantly, in a 2010 interview, Stephen King himself said that although the movie is a bit dated by modern standards, he still thought that Carrie was a good movie. So why would anyone attempt to remake it? You know what? Why do people do anything? Let's try to figure this one out together. In 2011, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Screen Gems announced that they were going to produce a remake of Carrie. Now keep in mind, this was the first decade of the 21st century and horror movie remakes were everywhere. Included in these remakes were the likes of Dawn of the Dead, House of Wax, My Bloody Valentine, Friday the 13th, Prom Night, The Hills Have Eyes, The Amityville Horror, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Ring, The Grudge, The Wicker Man, The Fog, The Hitcher, The Omen. I'll stop here, okay? You get the point. So to tackle the script, studio head honchos hired the guy who wrote the Broadway musical fiasco, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. And he was going to pen a more faithful adaptation of Stephen King's original novel. That all sounds completely bonkers, which turns out it was, because the screenplay was ultimately rewritten by Lawrence Cohen, who, if you've been taking notes, you'll remember was the guy who wrote the original adaptation for the original version of Carrie. When Stephen King heard the news of a Carrie remake, he asked, why, when the original's so good? He's smart. King did think if they were going to remake it that they should maybe cast Lindsay Lohan in the film. That might be fun, but Lohan was busy driving her acting career into a ditch, and so things didn't work out there. Instead, the role went to Chloe Grace Moritz. Moritz had already appeared in the aforementioned remake of the Amityville Horror as the youngest of the Lutz children, Chelsea. She'd had a successful career as a child actress, appearing on numerous TV shows, including My Name is Earl and Desperate Housewives. She also provided the voice of the little girl Darby on the animated series My Friends Tigger and Pooh. But for many film fans, her breakout role was at the age of 12 when she portrayed Hit Girl in the ultraviolent Kick-Ass, where she murders numerous people and uses all kinds of salty language. This performance led to bigger roles, including starring in the youthful vampire-centric movie Let the Right One In. She was a recurring character on the NBC sitcom 30 Rock, and then Kick-Ass 2 came along, and then ultimately, this led to her being cast as Carrie. 
Kimberly Pierce was selected to direct the film. Pierce had directed the film Boys Don't Cry, which told the story of Brandon Tina, a transgender man who was the victim of a brutal hate crime in Nebraska. Hilary Swank played the lead role in that film, and she won a Best Actress award for her performance. Now, Pierce followed up that movie with the film Stop Loss, which was inspired by stories of American soldiers fighting in Iraq and their life once they returned back home from war. And these two movies had some pretty heavy subject matter. The text and subtext that one could find in a remake of a Carrie film could prove to be interesting for a filmmaker whose previous works were steeped in such challenging subject matter. Julianne Moore was cast to play Carrie's mom, Margaret. Julianne Moore has a career that is too vast to cover in this introduction. She's a wonderfully talented, Oscar-winning actress, but there are some parallels between her career and those of Chloe Grace Moretz. Moore was also featured in a remake of a classic horror film as she was cast in Psycho, and Moore was also a reoccurring character on 30 Rock. I'll bet they talked about those things when the cameras weren't rolling. All the Mean Girls and the other teenagers were cast by actresses and actors who all have varying degrees of success in their own careers, and only time will tell if these young actors will go on to such greatness as the original adaptation's group of performers. Production of the movie started at the end of June in 2012, and it wrapped up about two months later. And the movie was set to hit theaters in March of 2013, but the release date got kicked back to October of 2013, because it's a scary movie and, you know, October and Halloween. And this spooky seasonal release date helped the film come in third at the box office, right behind Gravity and Captain Phillips, because it's tough to beat Sandra Bullock on a spaceship with George Clooney and Tom Hanks on a watership with a gun-toting pirates. Critical reviews of the movie were what you'd expect. Some thought this, others thought that. But you know what? In the end, I'm not sure that their critical response really matters all that much. When all was said and done, this Carrie remake pulled in about $84 million worldwide off a budget of about $30 million. So the movie was a success. Kind of. Sort of. Look, Carrie is an iconic character in literature and in film. Any remakes will not diminish the impact that the character Carrie had on the life and career of Stephen King and the subsequent library of novels and short stories that he continues to publish to this very day. On June 19, 1999, Stephen King died. Almost. Had King not survived that fateful accident, he never would have published his memoir on writing. We would not know the details shared in that book regarding his early life, the influential impact of his wife, Tabby, on his first published novel, Carrie, and his subsequent incredibly successful career. Stephen King bought the van that hit him as he walked alongside the road that fateful day. It was later demolished in a junkyard. The man who was driving the van has since died. He passed away on September 21st in the year 2000. September 21st is Stephen King's birthday. After the accident, King's glasses were returned to him, bent and twisted, but the lenses were unbroken. King replaced the damaged frames, but he kept the lenses. King wrote, I guess that I wanted to say that things we ordinarily would see as quite fragile aren't necessarily that fragile. It's true of glasses, and it's true of me. I got bent, I got busted around a lot, but I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah, he is. But what about this remake of Carrie? Can a talented crew of filmmakers and performers effectively reinvent one of the most revered horror movies of all time? Is there anything new that can be pulled from the novel into a fresh cinematic retelling of this high school story of revenge? And perhaps the most important question of them all, 
Huh? Well, to answer all of this and so much more, you know what? Hey, hey Bo? Yeah. Yeah, get in here. We got to record the show now. What, now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up the show open. How long? I'm just like a few seconds. All right. Yeah, tell Trumpet Guy he's on in like eight seconds. Okay, yeah, he's coming. Okay, okay. Ladies and gentlemen, prom kings and prom queens, I give you the 2013 cinematic adaptation of Stephen King's novel, Carrie. pillows. I mean, welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my incredibly talented, funny, smart, charming, and always present, Mr. Bo Ransdell has joined us this evening. Bo, how are you doing? Uh, present, as always. <laughs> we always ask each other how we're doing, and we're always doing pretty good. We should a- agree to do away with that entirely, the how you doing, mm-hmm. and just agree that hey if something changes we'll let you know that sounds like a good idea hey this is season nine of pick six movies if you can believe it and this theme is hail to the king baby where we're going to be taking on six motion pictures that are adaptations of novels or short stories by the one and only stephen king which i have read everything from up until about oh i don't know 1995 and then that's when you stopped i think the tommy knockers was a real gut check as to how much more i was going to read of this i read the green mile that was pretty good no bag of bones is relatively recent i read that that was really good but there are some real stinkers in in some of the later years well that says more about you than it does about stephen king look he's he's an older man it's like uh listening to david bowie where you're like i don't understand this now but give me about a decade and this music's gonna be amazing i'm still waiting for uh tin machine (laughs) to catch up to me like i still uh, every time i try to listen to it I'm like, eh, not yet, Dave. I know you've passed on, but... It's like it, like Tin Machine is the music that is played in a, a movie where you're in a bar in the future. Hey, speaking of the future, let's talk about a movie from the past. Oh, that would be great. You've already heard a whole bunch of history about this thing. Let's start talking about Carrie from the year 2013. Our movie starts off and we see the exterior of the White House. It, it's, look, it's not the White House. This is a house belonging to Margaret White and what will soon to be home uh, to Carrie White. Point of clarification. This is sort of the Carrie origin story mm-hmm. in this scene where Mama White, as played by Julianne Moore, is climbing the staircase. Well, she's already climbed the staircase. It's one of those things where we're playing detective with the camera where, where we see what's happened. There's a Bible on the stairs just dropped there and there's some fluid. Yeah, it's it's amniotic fluid, Bo. Right, like her water broke and then she made it to the bed and has climbed into bed to give birth to this awful child i knew right away that uh, even before i saw the amniotic fluid that this was a pregnancy because like i'm a little bit of a pregnancy detective chad Mm -hmm. i'm not certified i don't want to go that far right 
I'm not a board certified mm-hmm. pregnancy detective. I, I got a pretty good eye for it. Well, you know, but when my son was born, my wife uh, had an epidural and overnight she was sleeping and we were waiting for our son to arrive. And it was about three o'clock in the morning. And in the room adjacent to us with the connecting doors, a young woman came in and proceeded to give natural childbirth to a kid, like no drugs, no nothing. And I was like, I don't know, four feet away from hearing a woman give childbirth all natural. And I remember some real noteworthy phrases coming from her mouth, like, get it the fuck out of me. Fuck, get it out. Fuck, make the pain stop. This was the strange woman in the room next door screaming all of these wild profanities as she is just giving birth to a child the way God intended her to be punished forever for eating an apple off of a tree. Well, not her, but, you know, yes, some other woman. Yeah, I I think that, you know, pretty much women always say, you know, men can't appreciate how painful childbirth is, but I disagree. I think I get it. (laughs) It hurts a lot. Yeah. It's also apparent to fans of this show that right now we really have a contender that could take the title of worst movie that opens with a baby being born which is currently held by it's pat the movie that is a gold standard of shit i don't know like carrie's bad don't get me wrong this is not a good film chad but yeah the judges give it to it's pat the movie because in that film you see the baby coming out of the vagina from inside the womb this movie that's all really left to the imagination thank god so there is no crowning in this film no she eventually yanks the baby out of herself i thought it just it just kind of falls out while she's screaming out unto the lord and i'm assuming that this is the christian lord not like the lord of the rings or lord of the dance lord of the flies i don't have any more lords maybe it's you know maybe it's the singer lord if so the subtitles were misspelled (laughs) uh uh, i was gonna say lord albert and then i realized i was just mistaking prince albert (laughs) and i also don't know any lords i'm mutually out of lords fauntleroy i yeah but he's a little lord and I, I don't, I don't truck in that. A leaping, but that's Lords. Yeah. Which goes back to the singer. It all comes together. Did you know that when some women give birth, they shit everywhere? I did. And like the percentage is high. It's like 50, 60%. My wife didn't shit everywhere when she had the baby, but she admitted to me that this was a real point of anxiety for her because she knew that if she had shit herself during childbirth, I would bring that up all the time. Like whenever we meet new people, every dinner party in Christmas card messages, it would just be a staple. And, and instead very happily you're just announcing to everyone that she didn't shit right it's a point of pride sure (laughs) i can't believe that you don't have that in the kitchen embroidered god bless this mess i didn't shit myself when i had my baby yeah she's probably not going to be all that thrilled that i'm talking about this right now (laughs) i can't imagine why you know but Bo, as we say in our household can't put that turd back in the hole. So onward and upward. So uh, Julianne Moore uh, as uh, Carrie White's mom is like, oh, this is a test. This is a test. This is a test. This is because she's all wackadoo, Chad. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a crazy person. Spoilers. Yeah, she's also a beautiful person. Julianne Moore is a lovely woman. I mean, just yes. beautiful. And she's too pretty to be playing this part, as are other people in this movie that we will be discussing momentarily. Yes. But in this moment in the movie, putting her natural beauty aside, when she's giving birth to this baby, her legs are cleanly shaven. Don't you think that a woman who's so obsessed with religion and, you know, making her own 
clothes and never wearing makeup would also avoid shaving her legs? I think you're looking for consistency in a movie that is <laughs> part Xerox copy and part mistake. <laughs> this baby pops out. And as you pointed out, she's a crazy person. So what does any crazy religious fanatic do after spontaneously having a child? She tries to kill it with some massive shears. I take issue with the phrasing, spontaneously has a child. This feels like it had been building for, I don't know, months. And wasn't necessarily a spontaneous act. Geologically speaking. Tick of the clock, sure. (laughs) (laughs) When she pulls out these giant scissors, it's a real, these are for you, set of of shears. (laughs) So glad you said that. And you can't tell me, uh, listeners, uh, turn away for a second. I gotta, this is just between me and Chad. You can't tell me that when the scissors are getting kicked across the floor and lightning is flashing and everything's going fucking crazy at the end of that movie Mm -hmm. and the kid all grown up, (laughs) spoilers for a movie we haven't named. Is it that again? Yeah. Uh, says, I for one can't wait to see what happens next. And it is fucking great that movie is is real dumb in a lot of ways but there are moments that are just pure genius unlike anything that happens in carrie i think it's also interesting to note that this incredibly religious christian woman just has this baby fall out of her it's a girl and she's immediately gonna kill the kid but i was like wouldn't there be a chance that she might think that this is Jesus 2.0? No, no, no. Like, we get the the revelation later of where this child came from. How much did you want to see Molly Shannon play the mother Margaret in this movie? Molly Shannon should have been Carrie in this movie. Molly Shannon should have been Carrie and the mother. That would have been great. Like, Mary Catherine Gallagher does a one-woman show of Carrie, and now you really got yourself a Carrie movie. Oh, my God. I'd pay $1,000 to see her do that on stage. Would you really? Yes. That's a lot of money. To see Molly Shannon do a one-woman show of Carrie from 2013? Yeah, when you say it like that, uh, now I'm in. (laughs) having seen the original movie i thought that when she comes down with the scissors and then the scissors stop up above the baby's head i was thinking that maybe the baby has telekinetic powers and was stopping the scissors from splitting its own skull open as opposed to the mom stopping from killing the baby herself did you think that at all i didn't uh i just thought that you know it was the mother having second thoughts but it could have also been uh, she she has like vampire glamour powers Mm. as well because not only does she move stuff with her mind in this movie chad she does other just supernatural shit she's got a lot of powers it's deliciously (laughs) ill-defined the fact that she can't breathe underwater and communicate with squirrels is beyond me (laughs) yeah honestly if if she had just started speaking with raccoons or something in the backyard (laughs) a better movie b it would have been no less ridiculous than some of the other stuff that she is able to do in this film because she's an x-man she is a a straight up x-man in this movie she absolutely is and she even says as much so a little bit later you noted that you felt like that this is a test for margaret to not kill her child like abraham and isaac in the bible 
which again, Bo, I'm referencing the Holy Bible, the Christian one, not the quote bartender Bible that you stole from Applebee's back in the day that outlined how to properly make Applebee's signature Cran Applebee teeny. I still live my life by the book of Martini <laughs> verses 8 through 12. Listeners, Bo worked at an Applebee's. I did. You also got robbed at a Kentucky Fried Chicken at gunpoint. Remember that? Well, how can you forget something like that? That's somebody, that's a, that's, that's a stranger pointing a gun at you. See, you've lived a life. I had to apologize once to Barry Manilow because I was managing a restaurant and during a slow late afternoon, he came in and a line cook from the back yelled out loudly in surprise upon hearing that Barry Manilow was in the restaurant. He said, Barry Manilow's here? I thought he died of AIDS. Oh, no. That's a terrible thing to say about Barry Manilow. I know, and I had to go apologize for it. That guy writes the songs that make the the whole world sing. Could we not talk about Carrie and just share old restaurant and fast food hold them up stories? I got at least three stories about Barry Manilow. (laughs) We'll save that for our other podcast, uh, Restaurant Rants with Bo and Chad. This baby gets born, and then we finally get the title of this movie, Carrie. And it starts to drip blood upward, and it's here you realize, oh no, this movie was in 3D, wasn't it? Was it? Absolutely it was. We start off and we get some opening credits, and we see the people that are going to be in this movie, and for me, I'm watching it, and I'm like, whoa, Judy Greer is in this thing? Judy Greer in anything, for me, makes any TV show or movie better. She is the Christopher Walken of any movie or show that she's in except she's a woman and she probably doesn't know how robert wagner killed natalie wood allegedly but she is a great dancer allegedly and if you don't know judy greer by name you may know her face or her voice she was karen in that most recent halloween movie that i didn't see she does the voice of sharon tunt on archer she was the kid's mom in jurassic world at the beginning and very end of that movie she was the secretary kitty sanchez in arrested development she was fatty magoo on it's always sunny in philadelphia i adore judy greer and she is the best thing about this entire film a hundred (laughs) percent i am on board judy greer makes me happy as a person i like the fact that she is somewhere out there walking around being great (laughs) it's here we get to meet the three main characters of our film chris who is the mean girl Mm -hmm. sue who is the not so mean girl and then we meet the star of our movie carrie and each of the actresses playing these three characters all three of them are beautiful lovely young women arguably each of them just reached their hand into a hat and pulled out the name of a character and that's the role that they were assigned to play in this film yeah this is a real problem with this movie is that carrie white is this strikingly attractive young woman she's gorgeous yeah i don't care how weird you are in high school chad there are as julianne moore puts it later they'll come sniffing around There would be guys all over her just like, tell me more about this god of yours. Uh Uh-huh. Locked in a closet, you say? Well, that sounds like tight quarters. Maybe uh, we want to go get a malted or something later? A malted? Yeah, you know, the kids, Chad. They like to get the malteds and go to the picture show. Maybe drive up to the lover's lane. Unless a malted is some sort of, I don't know, like like it's another term for some sort of enema of heroin. Then, yeah, maybe, but 
Give me a break. It's also a weird conversation to have about how lovely Chloe Grace Moretz is in this film in light of the Oscar-worthy performance given by Sissy Spacek in the original adaptation. Sissy Spacek is a lovely and talented actress, but in that original adaptation, Spacek is so just stripped down in her physical appearance that at the end of the film, when she goes to prom, she just blooms like a flower. In this movie, when Chloe Grace Moretz goes to the prom, the whole film, she's just kind of been radiating beauty and when she goes to the prom you're just like good god how did you manage to get more strikingly pretty you beautiful young woman you took off the glasses (laughs) and you were even prettier beneath Like I said, it's a real problem in this movie. And you're right, Sissy Spacek is a, a perfectly lovely woman who I would argue uh, grew grew more lovely as the years went on. Mm-hmm. But in that movie, she's kind of scrawny in her hair. As you point out in the intro, like she went in and had like Vaseline in her hair and shit and just looked gross. And she was that girl that we've all had in the high school we went to that was just a little weird looking, a little goofy, a little, a little outside the norm, a little left to center chad uh like like this show coming off of last season where we discussed a lot of different remakes which this kind of bridges the two this movie does a lot of what most remakes do they sort of copy everything from the original but they turn it slightly so that it's just a little bit off and it's not a shot for shot remake like that gus van sant psycho film and this movie does that but as always they just kind of just fuck it up yeah case in point in this movie it fades in and we see that there are girls playing water volley because in the original film the movie starts off and they're playing regular volleyball right one of the many reasons that the original is so much better is specifically can be cited in that opening scene because in that scene in the movie when you see carrie she's singled out in the corner of the volleyball court and you know her hair's hanging down to hide her face and she's pushed off into this one shadow that's laying down on the blacktop she is totally isolated and sort of difficult to see and when the ball comes to her she kind of swings and she misses and then she's told by one of her peers that she eats shit for missing the ball and you kind of get this sense of like you said you've kind of known someone like this potentially in your past but this movie's kind of absent of all this because there's no shadows and in this case they're in an indoor swimming pool and all the girls in this scene they're wearing swimming caps and I know that that may feel like it's kind of a non-issue but it's really important because in this movie Chloe Grace Moretz as Carrie she has this clearly dyed red hair and it looks dyed and more to the point there are a lot of red redheads in this movie one of the nameless mean girls has red hair there's a couple of dudes walking around with red hair judy greer as the pe coach she has red hair i kind of felt like if you're going to make a movie like this and you're going to create a character that's really singled out and isolated wouldn't you sort of make her the only redhead except for maybe like her mother or just do something different with her like you said they're all these very pretty young girls and who are now wearing swim caps so they could all just be almost entirely interchangeable Yeah, you don't know who any character is in the swimming pool. And when we see them before they get in the pool, it's like, oh, there's a blonde girl and there's a brunette girl and there's a redhead girl. And then here's Carrie. But then when we get in the pool, you're like, who's who? What the hell's going on here? There is nothing I hate more than when you're watching a movie and then uh, low budget horror movies are the worst about this, where every female main character is like a busty blonde girl. And you're just like, I don't know who any of these people are now. Obviously, the casting director slash director had a type, Mm -hmm. but other than that 
that I don't know what's what's going on in this movie because I don't know who any of these characters are. Carrie looks over and she sees Sue, the not so mean girl, and she's kissing her boyfriend, Tommy. And for a moment, it seems like Carrie is enamored with Tommy. Or I was like, well, hell, maybe she's enamored with Sue. I don't know what direction we're going to go with this movie. But this movie really fails to do, it's one of the many things it fails to do, is create a sense of attraction between Carrie and Tommy. Again, the original movie, as I, I noted earlier, is just chock full of talented people and it still holds up, albeit, you know, it's dated for what came out hell in the 70s, but it is a really well done film and this movie just somehow ignores all of the the subtle undertones of what the first one was able to pull off and it swaps all that out for just the tropes of a stupid high school rom-com or slasher film it's just i tell you what's fucked up about it is that they went and got that guy cohen from the original come write it because the movie feels like some dude in his late 40s wrote a movie for kids in their their teens and he just he doesn't know the voice or like what the hell they should be doing yeah there's exactly one one thing inserted into this script to modernize it and it's the youtube and that's it other than the the fact that they have smartphones Mm -hmm. nobody uses them and especially at the end of the movie when you feel like oh this would be the place where technology would most interfere no then it's just completely forgotten that cell phones are a thing those girls are playing water volleyball and they smack the ball to carry and she gets it and they're like come on like hit the ball and if you'd never seen this movie or read the book you would want 100% think that Carrie in this film is a special needs person. <laughs> yeah. Well, Judy Greer is like, Carrie, get in there. Quit fucking around. Get in there and mix it up. She's got this dead-eyed blank stare that's looking 10,000 feet away. She has this lack of movement. Right. She looks like the kind of person you wouldn't let get into a swimming pool unless there were multiple lifeguards on duty. Yes, unless there were as many people as you have in this pool. <laughs> and then she, like, slams the ball in right in the back of Chris's head. Or maybe it's Sue. I don't know. This is truly maybe the best thing that happens in the whole movie uh-huh. is it's a little top heavy with somebody just getting hit in the fucking noggin with a, a volleyball which i enjoy chad i'm a simple man i like i like seeing somebody get hit in the head with something and then the girl was around it's like carrie you eat shit <laughs> which is also quite good you know as far as i'm concerned this movie has two points so now it's after volleyball practice and all the girls are in the locker room and carrie goes into the shower and boat do people really shower in high school or is that just a thing that only happens in the movies you know like kissing in the rain or waking up from a sexy dream with a dog licking your face i have always been possessed of far too much shame to ever consider showering in public right uh so i just don't even pay attention to it like even if it were an option it's like well no thank you like well we have it right here and it's like it is the perfect temperature the the booths are like they're private like somebody can see from like mid calf to bottom of your foot and that's it Mm -hmm. and i would be like i will bid you a good day sir yeah that's how i feel about karaoke or as you say karaoke karaoke um (laughs) the art of karaoke the art So Carrie's in the shower and she's scrub, scrub, scrubbing. And then she starts her first period and she freaks out because she doesn't know what it is. Let's just talk about this scrub, scrub, scrubbing for a second, Chad. She is like enjoying the pleasures of the flesh for a second. It's surprisingly kind of sensual. And you're like, is Carrie about to masturbate in this shower? That's your read on this. I didn't see that. She has the soap on her puss and pulls it away and it's bloody. God, That is how we learn of it to get a job as a part-time janitor man i'm just saying what happens in the film 
So she starts her period, and I really like this as an inciting incident to the movie. I can both imagine what this would be like, and at the same time, I have no idea. The closest thing that I can think of would be if I had never heard of vomiting. No, I'd never seen it. It was not a concept. And then suddenly one day, I just, like, from the bottom of my gut, just start puking up food. How horrified and shocked and frightened I would be. Or maybe if blood just started spontaneously coming out of my asshole. Uh, You know, it happens. Um, I think (laughs) it's not so bad. I got to tell you, (laughs) you know, you keep an extra pair of pants in the car. If something happens (laughs) blood from the asshole, it's just after you get it, reach a certain age, you got to expect it. So Carrie starts bleeding and she runs into the locker room. She's pleading with all the girls for help. That to me is the most striking thing about all of this is her screaming, help me as they start chanting and throwing tampons at her. Mm -hmm. That is as genuinely upsetting as the movie ever gets. It really is a shame. Like the front end of this is kind of okay you mean the part where all the girls are running around in their underwear and they're snapping each other's ass with towels and they're discussing what boys are cute and i asked my wife if that's what girls locker rooms were really like and you know what she said she she said no well i mean chad (laughs) so here's the stuff i like about this the plug it up stuff starts which Mm -hmm. you know we referenced earlier right you've got the like lights are starting to to shimmy oh and also somebody's filming on an iphone it's like oh okay so we're using technology yeah chris the mean girl she pulls out her phone and she starts making a movie of this yeah right so she's filming and then judy greer busts in she's like get out of the way you privileged bitches get the fuck out of the way it's me judy greer She's like, Carrie, what is going on, lady? Get up off the floor. Jesus Christ. Those things have never been cleaned. And then Carrie is just like, ah! And so Judy Greer just reaches back mm-hmm. and pops her one. Smacks her across the face. Like one of those get hold of yourself kind of smacks. And I love seeing that in a modern movie. Because you don't. It never happens in a modern movie anymore. I don't know how often people are getting smacked these days. It is awesome. It's the kind of smack to the face that would make Nicolas Cage and the Wicker Man proud. Yes, not since the Wicker Man just two short weeks ago. Uh, Not since those heady days. Have you just seen a woman get smacked right in the puss like this? See, I used it a different way there, Chad. That was much better. And it's not as naughty. Yeah, I think the only way you can use the word puss and have it not be naughty is if it's in boots but not the face like oh i just got hit right in the puss you're tiptoeing <laughs> up to a line that's pretty dangerous yeah that dancing on a landmine i get it <laughs> did we mention that all the tampons and the sanitary napkins just start violently like vibrating out when she's screaming and yelling i forget we didn't say that or maybe we did who cares but that happens <laughs> and then only only sue of the of the mean girls you know she's clearly the one that's like hey is throwing tampons and chanting at this potentially mentally handicapped girl a good thing to do sue (laughs) hmm that's a real thinker sue so carrie and judy greer and principal morton who is a man they all go to the principal's office and here judy greer says hey carrie i'm sorry i slapped you you know i could have handled that better and you're like really i was wondering if you could have handled it worse like maybe if judy greer just started chanting with the girls or maybe if she came in with a nine iron and just started smacking carrie about the head at that point like yeah you handled it pretty well if she pulled a gun (laughs) (laughs) carrie (laughs) 
Shut up this instant. I'll kill every last motherfucking one of you. So Judy Greer's trying to get Carrie to sell out Sue, the not so mean girl, and Chris, the real mean girl. And she's just like, like, those girls are bitches. They told you to plug it up or something. Like, who, like, just say their names. You just say their names and they'll, you know, I'll fucking go break their legs. You know, Carrie doesn't say anything because everybody knows that snitches get stitches. Mm -hmm. Principal Morton says, hey, Carrie, uh, we got to call your mom. And Carrie's just like, and this is a real bad idea. And then the principal says, we know that since the state had to step in and prevent your mother from homeschooling you, that this is a touchy subject, but we got to do what we got to do. Why is this in the script? Is it, is it because people watching the movie are thinking, Hey, that crazy, super wackadoo religious Margaret, she wouldn't send her daughter to public school. Why she would homeschool her? Because if it is true that that's what happened in the reality of this film, I want to see that movie. I want to see a movie where the government prevents this crazy religious woman from homeschooling her daughter, but somehow left this daughter to live in her own home. This is all the work of the original screenwriter. This is a result of some nerd at a horror convention sometime between you know, the original film and him doing this one that was like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, it's a great movie, sure. But... Don't you think that Margaret White is the kind of person that would homeschool Carrie? I mean, it's a little bit of a logical inconsistency (laughs) in the original movie, don't you think, Mr. Cohen? And he's just like, oh, you dumb fat motherfuckers. I swear to God, every last one of you. And then when they were like, hey, we're going to remake Carrie, he's like, finally. I can set things right. I never have to listen to this dumbass question again. What could this woman have done that was so egregious that the state and or federal government intervene to force her to make her daughter go to public school. That's just 100% movie make up horseshit. Unless it's just like we're we're in a poop cult where that's all we eat. <laughs> you know, it's like the Jesus Ranch from Tenacious D where they just use their <laughs> shit for everything. Back in the principal's office, Carrie gets all freaked out about them calling her mom. And it's here that a water cooler bottle shatters. And the water cooler bottle is made of glass, which no, it isn't because no, they aren't. They're made of plastic in the real world quit making shit up carrie remake from 2013 uh excuse me the original (laughs) carrie sounds like bill cosby showed up no carrie's sitting outside waiting for her mom to show up and these two male students are sitting on a nearby bench outside the principal's office and then one of them says hey you and carrie looks up and the guy does that thing where he moves his hand back and forth in front of his mouth like he's holding an invisible dick and then he pokes the inside of his cheek with his tongue in time with the hand movement Book, just question for you. Why is this in this movie? Because it there's no other way to show that the lovely, radiant Chloe Grace Moretz <laughs> would be so shit upon in this school. What should have happened in the real world is this kid would have been like, hey, your crazy mother coming to pick you up? You want to run away with me? You are amazing. You are amazing. How old are you? 15? Fuck. Let's get out of here right now. You know, if you're really going to do a Carrie remake, you could make a film that first off had a little bit of self-respect, but again, it shouldn't be like this crass teenage sex comedy slash horror. You could definitely handle the subject matter of being isolated or different or having a difficult home life. Even the idea of having special powers and dealing with maturity and young love and responsibility and shame and jealousy. You could do all of that in a much more skillful, subtle, 
subtle way. I don't need to see some guy pretend to suck an invisible cock. I mean, do you ever need to, Chad? Sometimes it's just fun. <laughs> Margaret shows up to take Carrie home. And I think that Julianne Moore really liked coming to the set five minutes before they started shooting each day. Because she wears no makeup in this movie. Her hair looks like she just got out of bed. And God bless her, she still looks like a million bucks. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Julianne Moore uh, in general. And I think she's kind of fine in this movie. I, th- so much of this movie just feels completely unnecessary. You mean all of it? Yeah, the, that's most of it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That like, yes, she's great in this, but also that Piper Laurie performance is incredible. And the Sissy Spacek performance is incredible. And you don't need this movie at all because it's not doing anything different it's not trying to do anything fresh with that material and, and do its own thing with it yeah around the edges it is but it's it doesn't change any of the major beats no and it's much the worse for it because you can't help but compare it to the original and it as we said julianne moore when she rolls up in, into the movie you're like great it's julianne moore that makes the movie slightly better it doesn't make it any more palatable or entertaining unfortunately it's just like okay well at least i i'll I can focus on her as an actress and enjoy the scene on that level because there's nothing else that's going to engage you about this movie if you've ever seen the original. Until Judy Greer shows up. Yes, Judy Greer is the the bright shining star of, of this. <laughs> but so Carrie's mom shows up and it's just like, you know, grabs her and just takes her away. We also see in the scene that this video has started making the round. Chris the Mean Girl shows it to her 27-year-old white trash boyfriend and then she like jumps in the the air and like throws her legs around him like she's gonna dry hump him out in the front of the school this dude looks like he should be on a like a revamped version of jersey shore well this is the john travolta character right from the original who in late 70s looked like he should have been on jersey shore had there been such a thing where does this movie take place because it looks like one of those generic films that takes place in sandlow something california one of the problems uh with this movie along with all of its other ones yes it doesn't really have a, a a firm sense of place or time everyone's beautiful the sun is always shining the skies are always blue the streets are clean you don't see any dogs shitting openly on people's lawns you know i i was coming home yesterday and saw uh what looked like a a malamute in the full inverted pyramid Mm -hmm. pose taking a shit was its owner around or was it by itself (laughs) totally free that is one of my top three favorite things in the world to see i immediately thought of you i was like oh chad would love this And he was doing the look around. It was the full, like, uh, the, you know, (laughs) the the dog shit pirouette where they're just on the tippy toes. And you should have pulled out your iPhone and made a video of that. I was coming around the bend to get to my house. I was like, man, I almost went off the fucking road. I was so excited. That makes me so happy. I was trying to get a picture of it, but it was it was just like, I will get, if I stop the car here, and it was still a decision. Like, I don't know. My insurance is all right. (laughs) I think I, I don't think anybody's going to be coming that fast. I think I can take that hit. On the drive home, Carrie apologizes to her mom about uh, having to get picked up at school. And Margaret's car, once they arrive at the house, has one of those Christian fish symbols on the back, which don't do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit on the nosy. It's like, yeah, we saw the, the Bible on the stairs when she gave birth. Yeah. And 
like I we get it. We don't, you know. But uh, what I like that they balance it out on the other side is that Star Wars Rebel symbol. And I always like seeing that on the back of a car. Let's you know what you're in for when you talk to that person. Her mom goes inside and Carrie stays in the car and refuses to come in to talk about what happened at school. And while she's sitting in the car, some neighborhood dumbass kid rides by on his bike and he calls her Crazy Carrie, Crazy Carrie. And then Carrie uses her still yet to be discovered powers to cause this kid to crash his bike on the ground. And at this point, I wondered, is she a Jedi Knight? Yeah, this is like, uh, again, the superhero origin story where in the next scene after she knocked this kid off a bike, she would be, you know, on the roof testing out her web fluid. It just so happens this movie takes a different turn. Carrie goes upstairs and her mom is just banging her head on the wall. I like that move to get a little attention. Sometimes at work I do that. Had a bad day and I just go over the wall and start banging my head against it until somebody stops me. Carrie comes in and she says, Mama, I didn't want to upset you, but I ain't going to sit here and watch you bang your head on the wall, Mama. Mama, why didn't you tell me what it was like about having my period, Mama? And then Margaret, the mom, she just says, they're all going to laugh at you. And she says, yeah, Mama, but the first sin was the sin of intercourse. And I didn't want to be different, Mama. I just want to be normal like all the other girls, Mama. And then the mom grabs, I think it's the Bible, and she just clocks Carrie over the head. It's like something out of professional wrestling, the way she smacks her down. Oh, he came off the top rope with the Bible. Oh, the humanity. Oh, he got him right in the plectoids with the Leviticus. So Carrie goes down with this look on her face. She's selling it to the cheap seat. Those are the true fans. Those are the ones who can't afford the seats up front. Those are the people that really care about you and your professional wrestling. Margaret grabs Carrie and she drags her downstairs and just throws her into this like Harry Potter closet. And uh, uh, she tells her to pray for forgiveness. She looks at her daughter and she's like, they're all going to laugh at you. And then Carrie gets all worked up and she screams out, you suck, mama, you suck. Her mom slams the door. And at this point, the door kind of splits open down the middle and we are to assume that Carrie's Jedi powers made it crack. Yes. I really am going to try hard not to do this. In the original movie, this is all handled with so much more tact and more to the point in the original film, after Carrie gets put into her holding room, there's this wide shot where the mom is sewing and then Carrie opens the door and she comes out of the closet and she walks over to her mom by her own free will and she almost sweetly apologizes to her mother and then kisses her mom and she goes upstairs while her mother sews and the mother doesn't say anything the whole scene just tells you so much about their relationship and the power structure and what's expected it lays the foundation of what will happen later as far as carrie pushing back against her mom and then her mom's response of having her daughter disobey her authority but none of that happens in this movie no 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 uh that sounds like a really good movie i would like to watch chad it is brian de palma directed it it's an early film (laughs) and instead what we get in this shitty movie is Carrie uh again as you pointed out Kimberly Pierce is a fine director yes the fact that this movie is this bad is genuinely surprising I was surprised when I saw that she directed because I've seen her two previous films and they're both very well done and I really expected like oh this could have an interesting point of view and it really feels like it's just like a just like all of those movies I listed earlier of just like oh it's just an it's that but 
present day. Just do it and we'll turn a buck or two. It, that's exactly. It feels so workmanlike in its presentation. Uh, like having a director of Kimberly Pierce's quality. And also the fact that you have a woman for the first time directing the story of Carrie, which as your intro pointed out, was a, a, a concern for Stephen King as well of, of trying to present this very female-centric story in a way that didn't feel cheap. And it, Kimberly Pierce seems like the director to do that. So on paper, this should work. Yeah. And and because nobody gave a shit. <laughs> It doesn't. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't but but yeah so in inside the closet instead of you know this scene with mama sewing carrie gets thrown in with a bunch of sad jesus paintings mm-hmm. and there's a crucifix bleeding and shit and it's just like okay i get it it's this religion is just crushing her got it let's cut to uh sue the not so mean girl and her bohunk boyfriend tommy and some good old-fashioned jeep fucking chad yeah you know what i don't know how that happens not the part about sex but more to the point how sex physically happens in the back of a jeep wrangler i'm also not sure why it happens in this movie at all but more on that later well so you can understand why sue immediately wants to pimp him out <laughs> where he's just like carrie get some of this sweet thing you know i had it girl it's enough to go around right just smacking him on the ass go on <laughs> you give carrie a little bit of that show mama how you please a girl sue the not so mean girl she tells tommy about what happened to carrie earlier and how she sort of joined in on the chanting and the tossing of the the pussy plugs in case harry the janitor's listening and then tommy's like oh yo you're not responsible for other people in the world why don't you you know get back in the jeep and go around too i got some red bull and some fire energy i'll be in tip-top shape in like 90 seconds and then sue says you know i feel really bad and he's like yeah well you know one time i kicked a kid in the ribs for you being a dick speaking of dick do you see this big thing and uh why don't we go have some more unprotected sex what's the worst that could happen baby what are we gonna have a telekinetic baby (laughs) (laughs) so then we cut to chris the meanest of the mean girls and here we see uh, chris pull up with her douchebag 27 year old white trash boyfriend and this nameless third wheel of a female friend and they're drunk and they stumble into chris's rich parents house inside chris's house we see her bedroom and there's this oversized portrait of her on the wall of her own room so she's narcissistic i guess and then the, the douchebag 27-year-old boyfriend says, hey, why don't, why don't you two kiss? And I'm like, you know what? I really expected more from this movie. <laughs> yeah, this is the scene that'll teach you to really aim low. This could be a scene in Wild Thing. It's just frustrating. So these three idiots make a YouTube channel and then they upload the video of Carrie on it. While they're doing it, they start making these jokes about Carrie's favorite movie is Bloodsport and her favorite drink is a Bloody Mary. It's just lazy writing. It's, it's just not good. It is very like Lawrence Cohen being, you know, probably 60 years old as he's writing those. Like, how do you make a YouTube? blood sport uh we cut back to carrie's house and margaret opens up the door to the harry potter room and she finds her daughter asleep on the floor again not like the original and then margaret says they're all gonna laugh at you and then carrie says yeah mama yeah i finished my prayers mama and then in this scene margaret says to carrie they're all gonna laugh at you and she's telling her daughter that she loves her and at this point margaret begins to braid carrie's hair and they both smile at each other and they share a moment and it gives the impression that they 
love each other or at the very least like each other and they shouldn't. Carrie should be consistently struggling to escape the grip of her mother. She should not be leaning back into her embrace and if we think that they're starting to get close to one another it should be done under duplicitous circumstances. Like they should have an ulterior motive or they're just kind of playing the long con against one another. Right. They should be at odds in every scene. Even the one you talked about with the sewing and the kiss on the cheek it's like no there's there's a power struggle happening in that scene from the original yeah absolutely and in this movie they don't do that they they're constantly they just seem to to respect and love each other too much which makes the finale of the film less impactful and the the other thing about this scene i think is that look i try not to make fun of religion in general (laughs) however (laughs) you know i bite my tongue sometimes like when you're chewing steak or laughing really hard about something i've said about religion um (laughs) no but there is something innately creepy about walking into someone's house and they're listening to religious music especially this kind of robert goulet like oh here we walk and you're like holy shit somebody is about to get sacrificed stephen king does not have a good track record of presenting organized religion in a very favorable light i would argue stephen king does not portray any organization (laughs) and he is very anti-authoritarian uh as a rule like all of the talisman is kind of that it's about bringing down the man that's on our other other podcast (laughs) keeping it king an in-depth discussion of uh, the lesser-known Stephen King novels. Back at school, Judy Greer is holding court over these 25-year-old high school senior girls. And Judy Greer, she's out there, and she's just like, so you uppity bitches want to go to prom? Nah, you were real assholes to carry, you know? So how about this? Start exercising. Like, this is a work prison, or else you're not going to go to prom. And you know what else? You're not going to graduate high school. Yeah, I've got that power. And you know what else? If you stop exercising, no more birthdays. That's right. You don't get to celebrate your birthday, and guess what? You don't ever get to get another year older for the rest of your life and on top of that if you ever find a four-leaf clover and you make a wish that ain't coming true and don't even think about reading a fortune cookie you're wasting your time you bitch holes i really like a feisty judy greer i'm a big fan and and she is full bore feisty in this scene <laughs> she's great so chris is uh, she's like running she's like yeah this stupid bitch making me run fuck judy greer i hate her and just stops running and judy greer is like whoa 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 (laughs) chris the fuck is happening over there i'm not running and she's like fuck me fuck you you're done get off my field this is a hardcore gym class man she is a take no prisoners gym coach (laughs) this point the movie cuts to the front of the school and we see carrie showing up with her mom uh along with a whole bunch of other kids just walking in the front and i'm thinking why are the mean girls in pe class when all these other kids are just showing up for first period the best part of this whole mean girls situation here when like chris is like you know kicked off of uh the field Mm -hmm. she does that whole jerry Maguire. who's coming with me if we all go out they're not gonna throw us all out of prom let's just go Like, like we'll all take off let me read my notes <clears throat> and Chris, the mean girl, tries to give it the old Jerry Maguire solidarity and numbers <laughs> tact to get the whole team of girls on her side with the who's coming with me speech. And it works out about as it good as it did in Jerry Maguire. <laughs> no, no, no. Jerry Maguire got one. And a fish. She doesn't get shit. 
no, Chris, and like, she's like, Sue, what about you? Aren't you coming with me? And Sue's like, I'm just gonna go over here for a minute. And Judy Greer is just like, mm-hmm. No, ask again. Go ahead. Ask him again who's coming with you. You know who is, who's going with you? Fucking no one. Get off my field. She kicks him off the field, out of prom, and I think out of school. I thought it was just prom. I thought she she wasn't suspended from school. It was like you're you just can't go to prom now. Did you go to your high school prom? Yeah. I yeah, I went with Yeah. Yeah, she's the heiress to the local distributor in our hometown really i got uh hammered on wild turkey and i won a microwave oven at the school sanction after party i thought it was a vcr you won it was a microwave oh wow and you know what in addition to that the dinner for me and my date was paid for by my aunt because my parents didn't have money to pay for it it was an evening filled with conflicting emotions and copious amounts of wild turkey i went to to eat a very nice dinner with and then we went to prom. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was a nice prom. Back to this movie. Oh, yeah. Inside the school, somebody has spray painted on the lockers, Carrie White eats shit. And that's the same catchphrase that Chris, the mean girl, used on Carrie White in the water volleyball game earlier. You know what, Bo? I think Chris, the mean girl, spray painted that on her locker. She's at least a suspect. <laughs> I, as a pregnancy detective, I ruled nothing out, Chad. <laughs> And you know what? We see this underappreciated janitor scrubbing this graffiti off the locker. You remember, Hey, speaking of high school memories, you remember that janitor that we had in high school that was nicknamed Elvis? And he drove that stretch pink Cadillac. Yeah. And he was an Elvis impersonator on the weekends. And he had that giant ring of keys. You remember that guy? I do remember that guy. He committed suicide later in life. Did he really? Mm, the world's fucking crazy, isn't it? I was about to say, that guy seemed to really have it figured out. <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like once you make that turn into Elvis impersonator, <laughs> where you're like, this is just who I'm going to be for a little bit. And drive a pink Cadillac. Yeah. I, I Look, I, I thought the car was cool. Did then, still do. <laughs> Carrie goes into the girl's bathroom after seeing the spray paint on her locker regarding her accusation of eating shit. And here Carrie undoes the braids that her mom had put in her hair. And then Carrie uses her telekinetic powers to break a mirror into small shards. Here we get to see some 3D effects for the audience that made the mistake of going to see this film and not realizing that the time that they had chosen was in 3D and therefore had to pay a premium to get the glasses. And we're just like, fuck. <laughs> yeah when they were like oh shit i'm watching carrie in 3d there's another one at 8 45 it, this it's 7 45 now <sighs> all right we'll 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 see the this one is fine <laughs> i'll tell you what i'm gonna wait for you in the lobby <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna play the air hockey machine yeah just me it's still more fun <laughs> Carrie then hilariously just Googles magic powers <laughs> in the live school library. Right. But she's also giving goo goo eyes to some random boy. And I was like, so she just what likes boys now? Why isn't this Tommy? Who the hell is this rando kid? He is a very helpful young librarian uh, who helps her make YouTube full screen. She's just staring blankly at the screen as he gives her advice. And she should say thank you, but she doesn't say anything. She just stares at the screen as you 
see someone using their hand to magically make the pages of a book move forward and back. Carrie's mother didn't just overlook telling her about good female hygiene. She forgot to teach her good manners. Shame on you, Margaret. At the very least, I, you know, go with go with God. Something like that. Like, hey, when somebody does a, does you a solid, tell them you're going to pray for them. Something. We then see Carrie sit in the classroom and she's looking out the window and she uses her magical powers to make the American flag flip-flap in the wind during English class. America! Fuck yeah! Yeah, that was the message of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Carrie uh, is called upon to read a poem by the sexy, bearded, super cool English teacher. Yeah, who's also kind of a dick to her, which I like. She, do you know the poem she reads when she goes up front? It's Oh, pointy birds, oh, pointy birds, or oh, pointy, pointy, anointing my me. head, anointing, anointing. <laughs> so <laughs> it is in fact about that poem is uh if you get if you read into it is about samson <laughs> she wraps up the poem and it's like and and then samson tore down the walls and destroyed everything like i will at the end of this movie and everybody's like huh and she's like nothing as as she wraps up the teacher is like well that was great how about you have a seat carrie then the teacher gives fuck eyes to some 15 year old student that's gross right it's like am i right Lindsay? wasn't that terrible <laughs> whatever you say mr thomas <laughs> i'm not wearing panties the way you asked I'm like, Bleh. <laughs> trip carrie when she walks past <laughs> you Lindsay. <laughs> i mean fuck her right i'll give you three of my cigarettes if you do it <laughs> you three <laughs> <laughs> so when Carrie finishes her poem, Tommy, the cute boyfriend of Sue, the not so mean girl, under his breath, he says, awesome, showing support for Carrie. And in this scene, they kind of flip the script from the original movie, because in the original, it's Tommy who has written a poem and Carrie says it's beautiful, showing that she is supporting him. And there's like a sense of solidarity. And so in this scene, Tommy is showing vulnerability by reading his poem again in the original movie. And Carrie shows strength by supporting him by publicly putting herself out there kind of in a place to where she may be attacked by other students in the room. In this remake, Carrie kind of shows some strength by getting up there and, you know, doing what the teacher told her to do by reading her favorite poem. But Tommy in this movie is king shit of lacrosse douchebag mountain. And it doesn't really seem like that Tommy has anything that he's standing up for by supporting Carrie, except for, you know, maybe this bearded English teacher might come down on him. And in fact, Tommy calls the teacher an asshole and it's like, well, nobody gets punished in this school for being rude to their teachers chris the mean girl told judy greer to go fuck herself and you know granted she got you know kicked out of prom but it, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal no i mean this seems like a pretty upper middle class to upper class school so i have a feeling they all know like man i'd love to kick this kid right out of class but i don't want to deal with the shit storm that the parents are going to create it just seems like yet again they've missed the mark and therefore there's no a real emotional connection between tommy and carry and when you get to the end of it there there needs to be and they just miss all their chances to start to to build that so sue's mom goes into uh a closures place that does alterations and dry cleaning stuff like that closures what yeah. when were you born you're talking about air hockey and knee socks and 23 skidoo my first car was a dirigible <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, we're back at the dry cleaner. And Carrie's mom is uh, is there doing alterations and whatnot. And so Sue's mom call, calls her to the counter and is giving her a spiel about like, hey, I'm really sorry about what happened with Carrie and that was terrible and obviously we, we feel real bad about it. And, and Margaret's just very quietly listening to all of this and stabbing herself in the thigh with one of those thread guide or something like that. I don't know. My notes on this scene is Margaret's working at a dry cleaner. This scene don't mean nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's sadly one of those things that is kind of added to the film that doesn't really go anywhere. But it's like, oh, well, clearly Margaret White has some kind of mental illness. You think? Right. But, you know, we've already just jesus her all up and, and have done that so cartoonishly that now to paint her as uh, someone who is just like, oh, she has like bipolar disorder or something. Mm-hmm. It seems a little too little too late for me to buy this character as anything other than just cartoonish and, and kind of paper thin. Yeah. Let's come back to the principal's office where we see Chris, the mean girl, and she's being called to task for posting the video of Carrie in the shower when she was all covered in her own period blood. And who is that that I see playing Chris, the mean girl's father? It's none other than Hart Bachner, the heartthrob knucklehead bohunk from Supergirl season five, episode one of pick six movies. If you would have told me that we would do another other movie with Hart Bogner, I'd call you a damn liar, but here he is. He was in Die Hard, man. He was just recently in that Nicholas Winding Refn uh, series on Amazon. We're not going to do any of that on this show. I know, but I mean, Har Bogner gets around, man. He's he ain't he ain't just your your pretty boy from from Supergirl. <laughs> Judy Greer's there in the principal's office. She's awesome. She is. And I like the fact that she's like, I'll tell you what, we'll let this little bitch go to prom. (laughs) Just open up her phone. And if the video's not on it, I'm going to apologize. I will kiss her ass in front of you, (laughs) in front of Jesus. Just open up that phone and show me there's no video of Carrie White. Chris is like, fuck you, Judy Greer. I'm not showing my phone. Right. And Hart Bachner is awesome in this because he's like, just show her the goddamn phone, will ya? Like, I gotta get back to work. Why am I dealing with any of this? If I show them the phone, they're gonna see that video that I posted online that they're looking for, dad. Yeah, and finally he's just like, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. In that scene. I thought it was delightful. Uh, <laughs> when Hart Bogner is just like, what? Show her the vi- show her the fucking phone. No? <laughs> then I'm done. See ya. All right. It felt very real to me in a way that I, I genuinely appreciated. All the mean girls are now decorating for prom. And then Chris, the main mean girl, uh, she's, you know, storming off from the principal's office and she stops by to swear and mouth off at all of her friends for not standing up with her. And then Sue, the not so mean girl, she says, Hey, look, we deserved it. We shouldn't be assholes to carry white. And then Chris says, you know, Sue, you've been dreaming of the perfect prom and the perfect dress and how you're going to have sex with your boyfriend, Tommy. And I was like, this is the kind of dumb shit that happened in this movie. It relies on all of these teen melodies dramatic tropes but it doesn't even lean into that fully if it were like hey we're gonna just do high school melodrama like riverdale on the cw network is a great example of this of like we're gonna do this kind of twin peaksian teen drama but it is pure pulp this movie flirts with that but it's just never it never fully commits to anything other than being just this pastiche of the original and if it had done that if it had just been like 
just go fucking dangerous liaisons with this shit and get kind of sorted. It's also interesting how little Carrie is in this movie. Well, but what is there for her to do other than be put upon until she's not? After Sue ends up going home and seeing the red dress and all that stuff, then the next scene with Carrie is just her sitting on her bed reading about magic and starts... <laughs> floating shit around the room like she's going to school at Hogwarts mm-hmm. and like lights are flickering and her mom is like is somebody doing witchcraft in this house yeah and goes up to try to catch Carrie in the act of witchcraft and Carrie instead is asleep magically turned out the lights and is all all tucked up and is like <laughs> and she's like hmm I guess she was asleep the whole time oh well and then that's kind of the whole scene when Margaret goes upstairs she brings this big butcher knife with her to protect herself and i was thinking you know what this is a woman who is not a fan of the second amendment and in fact she's the kind of gal that purposefully brings a knife to a gunfight she is really fond of knives in general cutlery as a whole in this film (laughs) i don't know she probably can't get a gun let's be honest when you know she's all tucked in and or she's in the bed and then margaret comes over and just kind of takes the the blanket and sort of you know retucks in her daughter to make sure that she's safe and again carrie should be continually frightened of her mother but margaret does everything but bake her cookies in this movie i mean i i get it that she's a cuckoo brain but she does so much that is more in the ballpark of being a loving mother who's just kind of a crazy person i don't know that it cheapens the character necessarily from what the original character was it just feels bungled you know like it should have been either more of a thing or not in the movie at all let's cut back to tommy our football uh, i mean lacrosse hero and um, he's the big man on campus and he's playing lacrosse who is this movie for why isn't he playing cricket or whack bat <laughs> right are hunting humans for sport on a remote island yeah it it is the like whitest slash richest of all the sports like if somebody tells you that they play lacrosse th- my first question is why what possible good can it do anyone so sue says hey tommy take carrie to prom you know i'm a good person now because i need to give this super important moment of my youth up because i was a terrible person when i chanted at carrie and threw a tampon at her and i'm not that person anymore so we see tommy and he's walking down the hall high-fiving all these other school douchebags and i'm thinking how am i supposed to like a guy that walks down the hall high-fiving people I just can't do it, Bo. I can't. No argument here, Chad. He's he, Ansel Elgort is this kid's name, uh, who's pretty good in Baby Driver. I love Baby Driver. I did. I did not like this movie, but I thought he was great in that. Right. He's not. He's not a terrible actor. But again, when you have somebody walking down the middle of a high school corridor, kind of strutting and giving high fives to people, all I wanted to do was punch him in the dick, like <laughs> watch him roll over. I'll tell you, this is maybe my favorite scene in the movie, though, because I think. Chloe Grace Moretz is actually really good in this scene where Tommy finally finds her and asks her to prom and she's immediately suspicious. Will you go prom with me? Are you reading books? Hey, it was a book about magic. You know, I hypnotized a dog one time. So me and my friends were going to hypnotize a dog to go get us some beers. Carrie's like, you what? You hypnotized a 
Dog, what do you want with me? She's like, monsters, liars. You're all a bunch of little liars. I was just wondering, you gonna go prime with me because you were so cute and all. I got these turtles. And then... I like when she says, "Please stop trying to trick me." Yeah, but what is she talking about? At no point in this movie do they mention anything regarding how people have tricked her in the past. I know it is. It is strictly me being like, "Wow!" In in the movie version of Carrie, that would be a great scene. It's not connected to anything in this scene worth a shit. She could have said. Please stop trying to to make me eat dirt. No one's trying to trick you. There's no precedence for that. She had a period in the shower and freaked out and these girls responded in, in, in terribly in kind. That's not a trick. Eh, it's more of a prank. It's not even a prank. It's not premeditated. It was an inappropriate response. Just so goddamn worked up over this. The, the thing the movie doesn't do that it should. Like everything. but Everything. But it, it should give you a little bit more of a sense of how terrorized, especially at the time this movie was made in the era of cyberbullying and shit like that. Yeah. That's what this movie should have been, where she is just constantly the source of ridicule and teasing and, you know, hashtags about her and shit like that. Mm-mm. And this movie just can't be bothered. That's a little too much work for Lawrence Cohen. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds like a ground up rewrite. I'm going to change 12 pages. That is all. Carrie goes to the gym locker room and just weeps openly. And then Judy Greer shows up to save the day. And she's like, hey, why so glum chum? And Carrie says, Tommy asked me to prom. And Judy Greer's like, what? Really? Oh my God, he's hot. I totally fucked that kid. You know, me and that bearded English teacher, we hang out in the teacher's lounge and we talk about what students we'd fuck and that kid tommy he's on both of our lists that's what she says outwardly but when carrie white says that tommy asked her to prom the look on her face is oh girl you are getting played that is bullshit he you he did not ask you to prom and mean it judy greer then tells carrie like hey come over here and she takes her to the mirror and they look in the mirror and she's like hey look you are chloe grace moretz i mean carrie white you are gonna hear some inspiring words from me because you are a hollywood starlet and you're gorgeous and that's what you are and inspiration and motivation and you're gonna be great and it's just like this is just so stupid to watch her say this to this beautiful young woman that they've tried to ugly up and i'm gonna pivot again in the original film de palma does this great directorial choice where when the pe coach is giving this pep talk to carrie the camera slowly shifts away from carrie and onto the teacher's face sort of making you realize that the teacher perhaps is living vicariously through carrie's good fortune of going to prom with you know the most handsome boy in the world it's this wonderful moment of you are beautiful and anyone would be lucky to be with you and it's just that she's looking at herself and not looking at this girl and you're like wow when you die at the end you're gonna deserve it because you're not really helping this girl you're just a horrible adult at least that was my interpretation whereas judy greer is giving her the like well if you just changed your hair and your face and your makeup and the way you act and what you wear and the basic shape of your body you would be great and <laughs> and carrie is like i would be let's go get him she immediately <laughs> yeah it goes to sue and tommy is like what the fuck is up here you and i both know like don't bullshit a bullshitter like i know that you are not legit asking carrie to prom and stupid ass tommy is just like 
I mean, it's just a thing we're doing. Don't worry about it. And then she's like, you shut up, Sue. What the fuck is going on? You shut up, dummy. What the fuck is happening, Sue? And she's like, no, no, no. This isn't a trick. We're not trying to hurt Carrie. We need to do this for us. We're doing this for personal reasons. But then Judy Greer says, hey, Tommy, don't you think you're going to look a little like ridiculous when you show up with Carrie White on your arm? And that's the moment you're like, oh, wait a minute. Judy Greer is an absolute good. Why did she say that? Because that makes her an asshole too and it's just like all of the characters in this film are absent of any consistent character development they have no real motivation in the script i mean you can make the argument that she smacked carrie earlier but it always seems like she legitimately is looking out for carrie yeah and to your point about the original you know that's not necessarily those motivations are less clear in in the uh the original film anyway when judy greer meets her ultimate fate in this film it's like eh okay that it was kind of the nothing that it shouldn't have been i think she just gets winged i don't think she gets killed no 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 it's just like she gets moved out of the way you were good to me so you get to survive yeah good for you but tommy makes uh, this reference which is in no way dated where he was like well you know tim tebow he shows up to high schools all the time with girls because he's an adult man and goes out with underage girls i figure i could do that too tim tebow is a football player and this guy plays lacrosse look we're already dealing with an apples and oranges situation here and not normal oranges those little cutie oranges like you can't make that comparison at all i mean i get this guy's a dumb dumb but tommy goes uh to carrie's house to ask her out to prom again and he's like so you won't go prom me for no real good reason at all and carrie isn't flattered or smitten by his presence she's just kind of confused and underlying this confusion she's really worried that her mom is going to see her with a boy which again why is she worried the worst that her mom's going to do is put her under the stairs and make her pray and then what you know bake her a cake and braid her hair <laughs> tommy's like so he's like i'm not leaving till you say yes and then carrie's like why is this so important to you and he's like hey, you know that poem you was pretty good poem i like that poem carrie sees a car coming down the street that might be her mom's car and she's like yeah look i'll go to prom with you okay just get out of here before my mom comes home you dingus for some reason as tommy leaves carrie appears to be happy but there's no setup for this being the thing that she really wants to happen. Even when she agrees to go, it feels like she's just sort of making the situation disappear. And also, she's going to prom with him because he's the only guy that ever was kind of nice to her, I guess. I guess. Again, like you said, you know, in the original, there's this whole thing about like her declaring this poem that Tommy wrote beautiful and all that. It, It just doesn't feel like that relationship is as significant in this version. Carrie ends up going to the dress shop question mark i thought it was a secondhand store like she was buying gently used garments but it's like in it's in downtown usa right like it's a dress shop or something i don't know it's a fabric shop the town square so yeah. to speak and yeah so she looks through or looks over a couple of dresses and they're a little too pricey and then she finds just material mm-hmm. because she's like i can make it so mean girl chris and uh her her dumb boyfriend billy and and some other pals see carrie shopping in this store and chris is like what she's gotta go to prom i don't 
think so. And then Carrie goes home, and of course it's storming. Mm-hmm. Her mother's waiting on the lawn for her, mm-hmm. and she's like, Mom, I can uh, tell by the way that you're out here sitting on the lawn like a crazy person. You're probably upset. But I want to let you know, I got asked to prom. I, I know, you're really excited about that. Also, I, I'm making my own dress, and you're going to be cool with it, right? They're all going to laugh at you! Yeah, well, she has this whole speech about, like, I need to be a whole person. Like, this is a chance for me to be a normal person. They're all going to laugh at you. The mother totally breaks down now. It's like, oh, he'll hurt you. He'll hurt you so much. And then you will get laid and how men are going to sniff around now that you're bleeding. Oh, God. It's just gross. And then she's going to send Carrie to the closet. Then Carrie uses her magical powers and just elevates her mom up in the air. Yes. It's just like, ooh, I'm floating everybody. She's like, mom, I'm not a witch. There are other people out there who can do what I do. And they have a school led by a real nice man named Professor Xavier. And they do battle with a real nasty fella named Magneto. You're a witch. I ain't got the devil in me, mama. And what's more, I'm going to prom. And nothing's going to stop me, mama. Yeah, she's like, I'm going and that's that. This scene should be so much more transformational. It's not. It should feel empowering for kids carry to stand up to her mother it isn't at all no and so then we go find chris and billy the 27 year old white trash boyfriend <laughs> right and some hooligans up at a pig farm there's a part of this movie that it was never filmed or written but i just want to discuss it real quick they were in the town square and they see carrie buying a dress right uh-huh. and they surmise hey she's going to prom that's right and they're like you know what we got a fix her little red wagon uh-huh. you know that phrase you use that phrase bo they're like well what can we do and they're like i got an idea what if we go out to old man smitherston's farm and we kill ourselves one of his prized hogs and we drain the blood out and put it in a bucket i like this what are we gonna do with that well we're gonna take it to the prom and we're gonna hoist the bucket up in the air and we're gonna put it on a rope and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna rig the prom king and queen ballot box so that tommy and carrie are prom king and queen and when they are on the stage, we will yank the rope, which will dump the blood on Carrie, and she will be so embarrassed. How about we do that? Uh, I got a question, boss. Uh, how come we just don't set his car on fire or something? You're gonna what? <laughs> right. You're gonna what? Step one. Fix the prom king and queen election. And that's that's the, the step where I'm like, I'm done. That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> You're gonna murder a hog and let its blood into a bucket? Just think about transporting that bucket of blood in the back of a car. Like, I swear to God, you spill one drop of that shit. I'm gonna kill you. Oh, fuck. I knocked over... Boss, I knocked over the pig blood. (laughs) We all know how this movie ends. There are a lot of complicated steps that get us to this finale, and they don't show any of those. There's a little bit of a montage of like, oh, okay, they're kind of putting this together. It's kind of Rocky IV-esque in terms (laughs) of like, oh, and now he's ready to fight the Russian. (laughs) So they go to this pig farm. They clock one of these pigs in the head with a sledgehammer, and then the white boyfriend he hands chris this knife to cut the pig's neck to let the blood out so that she's complicit in all this and she gets all excited the way that rosanna arquette was when she saw eric stoltz do the old stab and revive on uma thurman in pulp fiction Uh uh-huh yeah that's good 
I mean, she's just like eyes. She's like, like, oh yeah. And she gets her like, oh, kill that pig. Because I guess she's pretending that it's Carrie. Well, naturally, like you do. That's what I think about people that I hate when I murder innocent animals. I don't murder innocent animals. I just kill pigs, Chad. <laughs> and I have yet to meet a pig that wasn't asking for it. Back at the prom decoration set, we see Sue, and she's up on this ladder, and she like gets a little woozy and dizzy, and then she runs down to the bathroom and she pukes. In the audience, you looked at the person beside you, and you were like, "Is she pregnant? Why is she pregnant?" What is going on here? Yeah, so this is the first of the montages we get because we're we're doing this thing with Sue. We're seeing Carrie working on the dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing Billy and Chris and the the Bloodhound Gang is what I called them in my notes, right? Because I'm real clever, right? Uh, uh, preparing for prom by breaking into the gym and rigging up the pail of blood, and then we kind of land on Sue looking forlornly at her fancy red prom dress. She's not gonna fit in that too much longer. And then this movie has the sheer audacity, Chad, to back up a montage with another montage. Double Taj. Double Taj indeed. Mm-hmm. And this time it's like makeup and hair being done the guys getting ready to which in the original movie was done split screen so you didn't have to focus on how stupid this scene was for too long yeah because there were two of them and in this movie they do the montage instead Mm -hmm. and it reminds you like oh i don't care about any of this do we decide if carrie's an x-man or a jedi I would go X-Band because her powers are not just floating and moving stuff with her mind. Could she be grown-up Matilda? Maybe if she didn't have the heat vision. What about that kid that escaped from and then later escaped to Witch Mountain? She would be in the ballpark of a, of an escape to from Witch Mountain. Let me ask you this. Based on when this movie came out, is there a chance that she could be the adopted daughter of Scott Bayo from Zapped? No, because I think she would inadvertently pop someone's bra open like i think that would be a genetic thing i think her own bra would never be completely closed like just sprawling i don't know why i can't keep these closed mom there was a lot of telekinetic movies in the 80s i had a brief affair with scott bayo that's who carrie's dad was it was scott bayo that's what she can move stuff around right i'll give you 25 bucks to see that movie if scott bayo shows up halfway through it's like hey i got a letter it says that i'm a dad what willie ames is there and he's in the bible man costume and you're like this is all coming together now right he's i heard that you have a witch on your hands (laughs) no it's just my daughter in this universe we don't know each other scott bayo So Carrie is getting into her dress and she does her own makeup and everything. And then she asks her mother to pin the corsage onto her. And she immediately says, I can see your dirty pillows. And this, (laughs) this is one of those Stephen King things that he can just keep. You know, like every book, there's two or three of these things where you're like, look, you're an imaginative guy and you don't filter yourself. And that's great most of the time. But dirty pillows? No, thank you. I'm going to push away from the table and bid you all a fine evening. Tommy shows up and he's in a stretch limo to pick up Carrie. Big spender. Upstairs, Margaret, she's just hitting herself in the face over and over again. And Carrie uses her magical powers to do a reverse stop hitting yourself. And then Carrie tosses her mom into the Harry Potter room. And out of nowhere, Carrie shows that she has the ability to weld metal with her mind. She causes the sliding lock on the door to melt shut, putting her mom in the prayer room. 
I guess Carrie has laser vision like Superman. That's the thing, man. This this is where we get into real X-Man territory where her power isn't moving things with her mind. Her power is some sort of molecular control. <laughs> I guess. Or something where you're like, oh, I can vibrate the molecules of the metal fast enough to melt them or whatever. It is a complete like, the fuck? What? How did she do that? I don't know. Carrie's getting ready to leave and she walks over the door and she says, Mama, I love you, Mama. I'll be home early, Mama. And again, she's showing respect for her mother. Like She should just walk out and be like, you know, I'll be back when I'm back. And then Margaret turns to her famous movie and starts banging her head on the wall like that kid in Parenthood, Sands of the Bucket. Before she left, Carrie was like, here's some more of your creepy religious music. I'll just keep that on a loop while you're stuck in the closet. Yeah, but it's not done in defiance. It, In my opinion, it was done to make life easier for her. That that would make life easier for no one, Chad. If you're playing Robert Goulet sings the saddest hymns <laughs> at anyone, they are going to be the worst for it by the end. Carrie goes outside to meet Tommy and Carrie says, do I look okay? And Tommy says, oh, you look beautiful. Why would Carrie ask, do I look okay? It makes her seem vain and kind of desperate for compliments. Why wouldn't you just have Tommy say, you look beautiful? Is she looking for validation? This is all just so confusing. He's just going through the motions, right? He's just like, hey, when all this is said and done, I'm going to get back to fucking Sue. It's going to be great. Oh, I thought you meant the screenwriter was going through the motions. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. Like, yeah. Cut, paste, done. <laughs> Second act is finished. Let's let's wrap this one up. We cut to the school prom and it's full of mostly assholes. And one girl actually compliments Carrie on her dress and Carrie's like, oh, this little thing, I just made it. And then Judy Greer is there. Thank God. She's dancing like a maniac with a high school student and she's clearly drunk or high or both. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I have a few with the kids. I'm the fun teacher. <laughs> Judy Greer goes over to Carrie and she's like, hey, what's up, bitches? Are you okay, Carrie? You're having your period? Do you need some tampons? And, and You know what a period is yet, Carrie? Did you Google that as well as magic powers? Tommy texts Sue, who is at home, pregnant, with her parents on prom night. And they're like eating popcorn, watching a movie. And then uh, we cut back to prom and Tommy says to Carrie, he's like, oh, yo, you want to go out with us after the prom? We've got a party where we're going to go and we're going to do whippets and probably jello shots because that's what teenagers do, of course according to the old man who's writing the script. And then a slow song comes on and Tommy asks Carrie to dance and they do. And during the dance, Carrie puts her head on Tommy's shoulder and she looks happy. And again, this scene in the original movie is shot where the camera spins around Tommy and Carrie in a kind of a, a rapid, I don't know if it's counterclockwise fashion, but it's very hypnotic and stressful. And it's beautiful because Carrie is truly so happy to be with this guy that she is, I don't know if he has a crush on him, but she's certainly enamored with him. And in Tommy, Tommy, because of the way Carrie kind of stood up for him when he read his poem, he is drawn to her in some subtle, albeit notable way. Yeah, and I think William Cat is is underappreciated in Carrie. I think he's really genuinely nice. Yes. He seems so wholesome in that movie, in that scene in particular, like the whole prom scene, really. He seems like, I just want, let's just have a good time. Yeah. No matter what else, you and me tonight, let's have fun. Yeah. And and it's it's so sweet and it's so genuine and So we cut back to the White House again, not that one. Um and we see that Margaret is just breaking free from the Harry Potter room. She's got her fingers through the cracks and she's they're covered in blood and she's just ripping herself out like a, a crazed animal. It's a real here's crazy. Yeah. We come back to the high school and it's time to vote for the king and queen of the prom. And everybody votes and Tommy and Carrie, their names are on the ballot. 
I don't know how this works. And uh, because Chris, the mean girl, and her merry band of bitches are all in on the ruse, they're going to make all of this play out the way that they concocted in the parking lot of a Carl's Jr. Tommy tells Carrie, he's like, yo, we should vote for us. We could be prom king and prom queen. You're so beautiful. And you know, the heck with the devil or some other religious imagery and false modesty or something. And so they vote for themselves. And then Carrie agrees to do this. And as she does, she gets this, you know, wicked paper cut on her hand. And you're just like, this is so heavy handed with the, <laughs> the devil and the religious imagery and her being cut. It's just, nah, I mean, you're not wrong. It's just dumb. Chris texts Sue, who is for some reason now finishing a shower at her house on her prom night where she's at home with her parents and pregnant. And the text says, your girl looks good, but not for long. This is a small detail, but these things matter. One, why is Sue finishing a shower? And then two, Sue immediately just leaves her house. Her hair's done. Her makeup's done. She looks really put together and it doesn't make any sense in the timeline of this movie because she just immediately shows up at the school yeah i do like the fact though that like at first she's just like your girl looks good but not for long classic chris wait a second there's a real moment of realization that happens that i really like yeah and then she just drops everything to do her makeup and dry her hair to get to the prom all of this is so bad again kimberly pierce directed this i know and you would think like this stuff like oh how why why is she perfectly quaffed like it would be more compelling if she were like wet-headed and it would be more compelling if she was just sitting on the couch with her parents and her phone goes beep bop boop and she looks in and she's like oh shit and she gets up and leaves yeah you're right you're right just why why bother with the shower shit at all like why are we writing around that when we could just take it out <laughs> why not have her in the back eating a platter of ribs elbows to fingertips covered in sauce like oh great now i gotta clean this up first oh well where's that wet nap <laughs> they, they never give you enough of these she is sneaking into the prom sue is yes while tommy and carrie are being announced king and queen because we got a real dun 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 kind of situation right and up in the rafters are chris the mean girl her 27 year old white trash boyfriend uh-huh oh and in that scene he, he says he's like he's like hey when you do this we got to get the hell out of here because if we get caught this is criminal assault yeah he's like that's 10 to 15 brother we gotta go in the original movie this scene is done so well it is so drawn out and you can see how De Palma is such a student of Hitchcock of creating suspense and tension it is such a slow burn to the point of the blood being dropped on to Carrie in this movie it's like watching something on the Hallmark channel there is no suspense whatsoever a Hallmark channel movie is a good analogy I think you know De Palma of course used a lot of those split screen techniques to create that kind of tension and hey here's what's happening with Carrie and Tommy on stage and here's the bucket you know just about to tilt over and it's incredibly engrossing and and this movie does none of that and Tommy and Carrie take the stage and Sue at this point sees the bucket and then Judy Greer sees Sue and runs over to her and she's like oh my god there this is one of those inscrutable things to me Judy Judy Greer shoves her into a room and like locks the door on her. I thought she pushed her outside. And or yeah, whatever. But how long does it take to be like, listen to me. They're trying to hurt Carrie. Oh, what? Explain more instead of no, I got to get in. <laughs> It's like, of course she kicked you out. Just say the thing that is going on and she's going to be on your side. It's it's so dumb. And then we see the blood drop on Carrie. Once, then twice, 
then thrice. Three times the carry. Then four times. Oh. And then five times. The blood drops on carry five times. It's just like glorb, glorb. It's it's like watching a highlight reel of Double Day or something. You're just like enough. You know how many times it drops on in the, in the original movie? Once. That's it. Once. I don't need to see it five times from five different angles. I like that Tommy's response is, hey, what the hell? <laughs> and then the mean girls take the video from the shower and they project it up onto these screens in the prom room. And then everybody in the, the at prom is laughing for some unknown reason. And then the empty bucket snaps and falls and bonks Tommy on the head. I guess killing him, right? Yeah, I mean, that's in the first one as well. It's like, what happened? He got hit in the, he got conked in the head with a coconut and died? Carrie, covered in blood and in shock, turns around and sees Tommy laying in a puddle of his own blood and the pig's blood. And then Carrie looks up to the rafters and she sees a pair of sunglasses that if you blinked, you would have missed it that she saw the 27-year-old white trash boyfriend wearing earlier in the movie the one time she saw him as they were leaving school. And so Carrie knows who is responsible for this travesty but chris and billy in the meantime are like cheese it before she goes uh psychokinetic on us carrie now knows the score knows that somebody fucked with her this is the moment we've all been waiting for right and she realizes here tommy is dead yep and she just loses her shit the blood floats off of her a shockwave knocks over everybody in the auditorium Mm -hmm. she shuts all the doors one dude gets stuck in the bleachers and she's slams them a few times to kill him it is mass pandemonium i expected this movie to be much more over the top it's an r-rated film and i expected more in the original it's not as violent it's mostly carrie using a fire hose to just blast people carrie starts killing people here and there and there's a few good ones she makes the sprinklers go off and people get crushed in the melee and one girl gets set on fire uh, her dress does and she's one of the main mean girls and you know gets burnt up and that's pretty good and then carrie starts flying around because mm-hmm. she can fly now. She's Jean Grey from the X-Men. That's right. And force chokes Judy Greer. But then she doesn't kill Judy Greer. She's uh-uh. like, you know what? I'll choke you, but I won't kill you. Right. She's like, fail me again. The music in this scene is also, it's terrible. It's like this low-key, like, guitar rock. of like, It's just the wrong tone for this kind of movie. Like, I'm all for a guitar-driven score. It's one of the things I like most about the movie Highlander. Uh, but it has no place here. Chris and her 27-year-old white trash boyfriend, they escape in their car and they zoom away. And as they leave, Carrie goes outside and she makes the street split in two like it's an earthquake and it prevents their escape. So they turn around and they come back towards the school and uh, our two hooligans decide that they're just going to run over Carrie with their car. And then Carrie uses her X-Men powers and causes the car to just violently stop on a dime in front of her before she gets hit, causing the white trash boyfriend to just smash his face on the steering wheel i guess killing him which you know what buckle up seatbelt save lives people he's dead right and and we actually have the coolest death of the movie here which is uh Mm -hmm. carrie picks up the car where mean girl chris is still alive and carrie just throws the car at a gas station Mm -hmm. 
and it hits the pumps and there's a slow motion shot of Chris's face going through the windshield. Oh, it looked awesome in 3D. Look, even in 2D, I'm on board for this shit if this is what we're doing. <laughs> and the movie, like, here's what I like is when a movie's a little bit mean-spirited about it because not only does she go face first through the windshield, but she lives for a few seconds after that where you see the realization of what's about to happen where the, the whole place is about to go up in a ball of flame. She realizes that and then dies before it happens i like it yeah it's a pretty good horror movie death it is the most horror movie thing about this horror movie is this <laughs> carrie returns to her home and finds that her mom has escaped the harry potter room so naturally what does carrie do she takes a bath what the fuck chad <laughs> where is my often knife wielding mother i don't know bath time let me get as vulnerable as i can be let me get wet naked my back to the door i'm gonna turn the music up a little bit i got my bath mask i'll put on <laughs> that keeps my already radiant skin all the more beautiful yeah carrie finishes her bath and gets all that blood off of her and then she comes out looking fresh as a daisy and she sees her mom and she's like mama you were right they tricked me and i hate to say it but they all laughed at me mama just like you said they all laughed at me and then margaret comes over to carrie and the two of them kneel down to pray for forgiveness and during this whole scene margaret has one hand that is clearly being hidden behind her back you're just like like i you know that it's like well is it the knife or the scissors what's the over under on those two choices because right. we, we clearly know it's one or the other and again in the original movie when this scene happens it is such a shock when she kneels down with her daughter and holds her and then whips out this knife and just figuratively and literally stabs her daughter in the back. And it is a shocking moment in the original film. In this, because the whole scene, she's got one hand behind her back, you're like, well, she's clearly gonna do something violent to her daughter. And it's not a surprise. She's playing the shittiest game of what's in my hand, where Carrie is just willfully not asking like, why am I only seeing one of your hands for this entire conversation right so after she gets stabbed she tumbles down the stairs backwards kathunk, 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 kathunk. right and forgets all, all about her powers and being able to float and shit right then she does the thing from the original movie where she grabs uh, her mother throws her against the wall and then turns her into a pin cushion by driving knives into her you might be surprised chad to notice some religious imagery here as she's uh, somewhat crucified mm -hmm. uh and then there's the uh the stab in the side mm. so uh is it possible to be crucified with a potato peeler or a fish filet or an ice pick or shish kebab skewers i'm glad you asked is it possible sure those old potato peelers and <laughs> garden tools that you've got around the house yeah you can crucify someone with them but i hear you saying there's gotta be a better way <laughs> now there is chad with a patented Bo Ranstall crucifier, you're going to get yourself three, count them, three wrought iron spikes, as well as a heavy mallet with iron reinforced tips to drive those things in. No more muss, no more fuss, just good crucifying. These three iron spikes you're talking about, how do I use them? Chad, what you do, you're going to take spike A, you're going to put that in the left palm. Bang, 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 spike goes in. You get spike B, that's right palm. Bang, bang, bang. At that point, if you say, have your, 
I don't know, subject uh, tied up. You can release those now. It's the weight that is going to do most of the work in this crucifying. <laughs> don't forget that. It is just gravity. But, Bo, you said I only have three. I've put one in each hand, and I'm assuming I'm going to need one for each foot. Ooh. Oh, no, Chad. Here's where the Bo Ranstall crucifier set is at its most shockingly brilliant. You place one foot over the other, take your Spike C, bang, 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 Chad. Now you got that thing through two feet into uh, the surface that you're choosing, and you got yourself a total, complete, successful crucifixion. I've been doing it all wrong. <laughs> I feel like such a dummy. I can't wait to go home and share this with my husband and my three children. They're going to love it, and the kids think it's quite a hoot. And if you buy two, you get the third for half off. And that's what we call the full Barabbas. <laughs> so then after Carrie crucifies her mom, she immediately goes over and just pulls her mom down off of the wall. And then guess who shows up for a late night visit? Sue, the not so mean girl. Why is Sue here? I have no idea. Bo, do you? Um, have you seen Tommy, Carrie? <laughs> He's not answering his cell phone that he doesn't use at all in this movie. <laughs> Carrie makes Sue float up in the air. And then Carrie grabs her mom and she says, I killed my mama. I'm so scared. I think I might get in trouble for what I've done tonight. And then the house just starts getting pelted by rocks from the sky, which that happens in the original. And I'm guessing it happens in the book. I've never read the book beginning to end. So, but that sounds like a real Stephen King thing to do. Sue says, give me your hand, Carrie. And then Carrie reaches out and holds Sue hand. And then Carrie screams out in the chaos of this finale. And she says, it's a girl. And oh, by the way, you're pregnant for some unexplained reason. I think they forgot to edit that out of the script. Or maybe this is some sad attempt at setting up a sequel. How could it? Because it's not. I know. It, it doesn't. But it is weird that it's a girl and then just throws her out of the house, which again, I can see a, a world where that would be a great scene in the movie if this relationship between her and Sue meant anything. Yeah, if she was saving her. In this case, she just gives her the old force push and like, well, hope that baby's okay. Your lack of non-pregnancy is most disturbing. <laughs> so then the house gets gobbled up by the earth. So they're gone. And then outside Sue is looking on and I'm sure she's freaked out because the house that was there isn't and she just found out she's pregnant and everyone in her high school is dead including her baby daddy that's got to be a rough night for her huh yeah i mean it's not great and then the next thing you know you've got to go to congressional hearings or whatever the fuck state judiciary oversight city council school board hoa complaints review I have no idea where she is. Anyway, in front of a bunch of older people mm -hmm. uh, who are like, so what happened again? What does any of this mean anything? No, doesn't. All right. Well, I, I guess let me know when something happens. I will. Oh, and before you ask, I'm not pregnant. I don't think. All right. Doesn't matter. It's not going to be mentioned in the rest of the movie. Bailiff, see him out. Um, yeah, but so Susan is hearing about the night of the prom and they're like, Mrs. Snell, would you agree that what happened the night of the prom was well within the bounds of rational science? She's like, bull to the shit. That was magic as hell. Carrie was magic. Put that on your record. And, uh, they're like, 
she's like, is somebody going to look into this? And they're like, top men will look into it. Who? Top men. And then she takes off and goes to Carrie's grave, which again is a nod to the original, but it's again so shittier in this version because the original is one of the first, like it's Amy Irving going to the grave and it's one of the first times you ever have that the killer has come back from the grave kinds of things. It is the absolute best head fake killer coming back, but it, it's done better than I've in any other movie I've ever seen before. Yeah, it's and, or since the grave isn't it's not a grave they just stuck a cross on top of the hole where the house disappeared and then you cut to sue we're talking about the original sue is there with her mom and she's laying in bed and she's all distraught and kind of crazy and the mom's on the phone saying like no we're with her she's doing okay you know she's kind of bonkers in the head but we're gonna we're gonna get through this as a family then you cut to sue going to the house where it disappeared and you see the headstone and she walks over to it the hand explodes out of the ground and grabs her and at that point you cut back back to her being in bed and she wakes up and it's a dream and the mom's there and she's like totally scrambled in the head she's fucked up completely yes she is cray cray as the kids say yes it's great it's fantastic even watching it through the lens of having seen every serial killer in every movie ever pop at the at the end and it's so expected when this happens it kind of reminded me of something i don't know if it ever happened in any of the the like the nightmare on elm street movies but the fact that it's sort of a it's more of a psychological rather than a, a, a cheap tack on yeah, it's really well done. And in this one, what happens is Sue Snell, as played by Blondie McBlonderson, mm-hmm. goes to the grave of Carrie in an actual honest-to-goodness graveyard because it's a tombstone and everything. Someone has vandalized the grave marker with Carrie White, uh, the name, and then spray-painted in burns in hell Mm -hmm. and sue is like boy such a shame you had to go and die like that carrie and also i guess my boyfriend got killed somehow and i'm still unclear as to whether you killed him or not and i've got some conflicting feelings about that obviously and then she kind of fucks off and leaves the cemetery then the headstone kind of cracks and then you hear some guitar music plays like carrie's back motherfucker that's it and then it ends and then it's over and it's like oh wow that was the worst way to end that movie ever it's um it's not good it is not good i will say a friend of mine who told me he listens to our show and he said he's like i really love hearing you guys talk but he said is there ever anything you really like about the movies and i said you know i'll take that under advisement yes and i will say that in this movie judy greer is absolutely worth your time and attention i she's awesome everything else just leave it at the door julianne moore's fine she doesn't have a lot to do but she she's a good actress and even in a bad movie julianne moore's pretty good this is isn't even a good scary movie it's not even a, a good cheap thrill boo scare of a scary movie medea boo halloween 2 is more frightening than this yes that is no argument there i i think you know if we're gonna i, I don't think either of us would recommend this movie but i i think mm. both of us would heartily say if you've never seen the original the Paul McCary, you know, yes, it is dated. It is a movie made in the 70s. Overlooking that, it's a, a fantastic piece of work. I watched it uh, in preparation for this and was both surprised and not surprised at the, the level of talent involved in that and the critical acclaim that it got. It's just like, it's they really, they really, really did a good job with that. So please go check that one out. Mm-hmm. So that is Carrie from 2013. But what do we have coming up on our next episode? Chad, it is the 50th episode. Holy crap. Of Pig Six Movies. 
5-0. That's right. And we are going to celebrate the, the anniversary. A lot of people don't know this. In the podcasting world, mm-hmm. the 50th episode is the Busey episode. And so we are going to honor that tradition. We are not going yes. to buck convention here. No. And we are going to do the film Silver Bullet, uh, a.k.a. Cycle <laughs> of the Werewolf, which stars, I mean, stars, Jesus, in, is inhabited by... <laughs> Gary Busey, this is as good as it gets, Chad. I am so looking forward to it. So come back and see us again in two weeks as we downshift into our brand new consistent delivery of brand spanking new episodes every other week. So we'll be back in two weeks with Silver Bullet as we continue this season of Hail to the King, baby. Bo, any final thoughts on Carrie? No, just give me some more of that consistent delivery. (laughs) You stupid bitches.